Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. If you're visiting with us or new to us, we've been studying this book for a long time, and we're coming to the end. We plan by God's grace to conclude our study of Revelation on Easter Sunday morning. There are times when a preacher must preach a sermon entirely by faith because the subject matter is something that he hasn't experienced yet, or the subject matter, as is true today, is something I have never seen, nor have you. Only a few biblical characters have gone to heaven and come back and told us what it's like, like, like the Apostle Paul. And there are other times that a preacher must preach by faith when it's hard to believe it. Kirk Atkinson mentioned in the prayer this morning, has been a dear friend of mine for a long time since he was in seminary, planting our church, uh, EPC Church in Nashville, among the poorest of the poor, doing a great work there. We support him as a church. And uh, he's had cancer, died last night unexpectedly with complications, we presume, from that cancer. And Deb wrote this morning as she told us about it that uh, she is brokenhearted, of course, but she's happy for him because he sees Jesus and because he's completely well. We know that by faith, don't we? And yet a text like this tells us to believe it counter to all that we feel. When we feel like, no, Lord, it's not better for Kirk to be in heaven than here. Or, no, Lord, it's not better for me to be there than it is here. Or, Lord, how can you expect me to sacrifice here these things or, or, or to get along without compromising no matter the persecution? And yet, God paints this picture by His Spirit for us of the superior beauty and joy, and perfection of heaven in order to encourage us, especially persecuted Christians like these in the book of Revelation to say, it will be worth it. Believe it despite what you see and feel. Let's read it together beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> then... I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His peoples, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down. 
for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. When I was in college, uh, my next door neighbor was a a soccer player from, he grew up in Mexico. His father was a world-class pastry chef at a resort in Mexico. And his father uh, tells the story of his conversion that for most of his or much of his uh, adult life, he had, uh, he had pursued every pleasure, all the accolades of man, And he was at the peak of his career, and uh, he was experiencing, he thought, the very fine life that he had aspired to. His wife and children had come to Christ through the local pastor there, and they had witnessed to Mr. Besmer many times, and he said, you know, what, what do you have to offer that I that's any better than what I have? I don't want what you have. I, wouldn't, I don't want to have to give up what I have to get what you have. And in the depth of his heart, he knew he was deeply unsatisfied. One day he was on the golf course and his day off and the, uh, the, the head, uh, the leader of the resort, the president of the resort came driving out to him in his golf cart and said, uh, Besmer, Besmer, you've got to get back and uh, prepare a dessert for our special guests. How special can this guest be, he said, to interrupt my golf game. It's Howard Hughes, he said. It's Howard Hughes, and he's demanding a strawberry tart. Oh, he was so aggravated. He went back, and he made the strawberry tart, sent it up to his room, and he sent it right back. Wasn't good enough. He was insulted, but Mr. Bessemer made another one, sent it up, he sent it back. He made a third one, sent it up. The best, freshest strawberries, all the richest ingredients, sent it up. Howard Hughes sent it back. In frustration, Hughes sent his plane to some island in the Caribbean to pick up what he really wanted Bessemer to imitate. He brought it back. It was in a cellophane wrapper. It came out of a vending machine. It was imitation strawberry. It was a cheap, eternally preserved strawberry tart. That's what I want. It's that that led Peter's father to come to Christ. He said, here is the richest man in the world. I've just prepared for him the finest strawberry tart on the planet. And he spit it out, choosing instead this cheap Pop-Tart from a vending machine. And that's the way I'm living. There is 
beyond me. There is in front of me the promise of eternal life in a heaven that is described in Scripture, and I'm choosing to hang on to this, which is just a cheap, false, fake, unreliable imitation. Here is what John strains to describe for us, because he did see it too. He was carried into heaven by the Spirit to see what awaits us. And human language failed him to describe it. But he puts it at the end of this book written to persecuted people where he has been begging, pleading, chastising us, warning us, do not compromise your faith in this world. No matter the pressure, no matter the allurements, don't settle for anything in this world, but order your loves by Jesus in heaven first, and may that first love order all of your other loves. Press on, no matter the cost, to heaven. Because this is what is promised. He gives us four things. He gives us, first of all, he said, this is what, you, this is what awaits you in heaven. First of all, joyous perfection. Verses one and two, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. I saw the holy city and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He doesn't have the vocabulary or the words to describe what he sees. So he he, he uses two analogies of the most beautiful things he can imagine on this earth. One, a, a, a beautiful city. Remember, John is on Patmos. He is, he is uh, in exile. Being, he's being persecuted there. And so he longs for civilization, but he He also longs for, he imagines a Roman city. The Romans knew how to build cities. There's a description by one archaeologist of what Alexandria looked like 300 years before Christ. He said it was a city of, it it, it had an avenue that was 90 feet wide. It had sparkling, sparkling limestone colonnade. Elegantly painted facades, hand-carved, delicately carved uh, columns throughout, manufacturers of perfumes and and, uh, fabricators of alabaster jars. It, it It was perfectly drained, the archaeologists appreciated, dimly lit at night. It was, he said, a city that uh, was able to amaze your sensibilities. It was enrapturing. It was the Paris of its day. This is the kind of city that John was imagining. But even Alexandria had its faults. Alexandria, nothing of its former glory. And so then uh, John presses his his uh, imagination, what else could I compare it to? I'll, I'll compare it to a perfectly adorned bride. Uh, the Roman women knew how to dress too. Archaeologists unearthing Pompeii that was destroyed by the volcano in AD 79. 
uh, found evidence of the way women dressed, gold combs, gold earrings, gold nose rings, gold armbands, gold wristbands, gold rings, uh, gold uh, belts, gold toe rings. And those bedazzled with uh, precious jewels as well. He imagines such a woman coming down the aisle to meet, meet her, her groom, perfectly adorned for her husband. He said, that's sort of what it's like. But even that fails accurately describe the beauty of heaven. So what can we hope for? We, you, know, you say, what, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if God at times would give us a taste of heaven, but do you know that the saints have testified throughout history that, that God does open the window of heaven on occasion and let us get a taste of what is internally in store for us? C.S. Lewis called it joy, that experience, that, that brief experience when, when a smell, uh, an ex- a sight, uh, an occasion carries you away and you think everything this is absolutely perfect and I wish I could freeze frame it forever and then it and then it passes you by it's what it's what God used to bring C.S. Lewis to himself that pursuit of joy the British romantics tried to to describe it because they had tastes of it though they weren't Christians they had these these fleeting tastes of something out there that was that that, that connected them to sheer perfection and the saints of God have recorded similar incidences throughout history. I've kept my own journal of these kinds of things. I won't bore you with them all, but just give you some, some examples to cue your own imagination. Because if you look for it, if you're expecting it, you may, you may experience what C.S. Lewis calls signposts of heaven when he occasionally says, don't quit, don't give up. I'm bringing you to this. It's not here but I'm bringing you to this. I remember a bike ride when I was nine years old, my first bike ride by myself. I wasn't a Christian. And just for a moment, I looked up at a clear sky and I knew there was somebody out there who loved me. It was just a, a moment when heaven was connected to earth. There's another time when I came to Christ and experienced peace when I had not known any peace. It was a moment in front of the Covenant College Chapel when I knew that I knew that God loved me. It was a piece of French silk pie with Jackie Smith at Vineyard Cafe in Chattanooga. And I'd forgotten my wallet and she got to pay for it. (laughs) Heavenly. No, it was a taste of heaven. The birth of each one of my children the Jubilee service that we had in Memphis four years ago, my first Easter here, a Sunday night a few months ago. And if you think and meditate today on those moments when the, the, the separation between earth and heaven has been especially thin, you may know that that's when God is saying, don't give up. This is what you may anticipate. It's not here but here's a taste of it, joyous perfection. The second thing that heaven offers, as we find in our text in verse 3, is glorious diversity. Here is perhaps one of the clearest statements of God's mission for the church and for our individual lives. 
that we could find anywhere in Scripture. I say that for several reasons. For one, this is one of the rare moments in the book of Revelation when God directly speaks. God directly speaks. He speaks, of course, he speaks throughout the book, but he speaks through the Holy Spirit. He speaks through John. He speaks through an angel. But here God says himself, God speaks himself. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne. This is God speaking to John. And he says, here, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people's. And God himself will be with them as their God. Why do I say this is such a clear mission? For one, as I said, it's God speaking directly. You sometimes wonder, I I wish God would just talk directly to me. Well, he does every time his word is open. But here is no shadow of a doubt. He is speaking directly to you with a loud voice. And he says, I want you to know this. The dwelling place of God is with man. And here is where his glory dwells, among his peoples. I've read that as plural because that's the way the superior manuscripts of the New Testament have it, as a plural, which is only in keeping with what John has already taught in the book of Revelation. Revelation 7, 9, he said there will be those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That would have been a surprise to the New Testament church. It would have been a surprise to Jewish believers who would have believed all of these, these centuries, what they had been taught by Jeremiah or Hosea or the rest of the, that they are the people of God. They would have thought they've concluded wrongly. There were plenty of hints in the Old Testament that God was going to build a multi-ethnic family. But they would have thought, wait, wait, there's only one people. No, God's dwelling place will be among the peoples. One color, one class, one socioeconomic background, one skin color will not be enough to reflect the glory of the image of God. He will weave together all the, 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 the many splendor things of his creation into one new people. And he says very plainly that, that his glory is among the peoples that he himself will be the God of the peoples. That word that he will dwell, skinne, is one that we know well from John chapter 1. When, uh, it says that Je- we, uh, Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us, skinne. Funny sounding word, but it's trying to sound like an Old Testament word, shekinah. The glory of God came to earth in the flesh of Jesus Christ, and the glory of God will be realized in heaven. The glory of God will be realized in heaven among peoples. It's not anything different from what he tells the New Testament, the New Testament church. He says, this is the way you will reflect my glory. You will reflect my glory by becoming a community of many united into one. Gentiles and Jews, rich and poor, outsiders, insiders, Greek, Hebrew, 
my glory, the glory of my gospel will only be convincing as you dwell together, as you live together, as you worship together, as you call one another, father, mother, and sister, and brother, call people who you're not supposed to be friends with those familial terms. No, the world, he says, in effect, the world will never believe in this, this, this idea that a unholy God, I mean, a holy God can be reconciled to a holy people, reconciled to two beings who are not supposed to be united, that two beings can be united if they don't see it happening objectively in your congregations. And so what we've been learning in the book of Revelation is that those communities that are diverse and yet unified are those communities where the glory of God is most fully realized. And the more monocultural and monosocial any community is, according to Revelation, the more it is an encampment, an outpost perhaps, of the Antichrist. What convinces people of the gospel is when we carry relationships out of this church and into our communities and we relate to people who we're not supposed to relate to. This is the strategy of the parishes. And we're, we're drawing lines, not boundary lines, but lines for organization, not around neighborhoods, but around areas of the city that are not supposed to relate to each other. But drawing together north and south and east and west, rich and poor, black and white, Hispanic and Asian, and relating to each other intentionally in such a way that people go back and scratch their head and say they're not supposed to be friends with each other, and yet they're, they're, they're congregating, they're in each other's homes, and they're fellowshipping, and they're recreating, and, they're, and, and they call each other brother and sister and father and mother. What is this mysterious power that brings them together? And we get to say it's identified in Ephesians 3. The mystery of the gospel is this, that the Gentiles have had an inheritance just like the Jews. The mystery of the gospel, he says, is the breaking down of these false barriers that the Antichrist is constantly trying to build up. And we get the joy and the privilege of astounding people with this mission. This is what Kirk Adkison gave his life for in Nashville with All Souls Church. He made it his life ambition to plant a church among the poorest of the poor, with the rich also worshiping there, black and white living in the gospel harmony that only the power of the gospel can create. It's why we have missions, that we're, we're participating in this eternal vision of that day when we will see the complexion of heaven reflecting every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's what we have to look forward to in heaven. Glorious diversity. And then thirdly, he said what we have to look forward to in heaven is generous restoration, verses 4 through 6. Something that we've noticed all through our study of Revelation. 
that the old is going to pass away and the new is going to come, meaning that everything that was, has been scarred by sin and the fall will go away. Some of you are sad to read, as I was for years, that the sea will be no more. That just can't be. But instead, what he's, ta- he's, not talking, there will be, he's not saying there will be no ocean in heaven. But rather the sea, like we read about in Revelation 13, that, that symbol of chaos and offense and oppression that the beast comes from. And everything like it that has scarred the good creation, all of that will be removed. And as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.10, the earth itself will be liberated and restored to do what it was made to do. What was it made to do? It was made not only to preserve human life, but to cause it to flourish. We have only known, we we know the miracle of an earth that keeps us alive. You know, just a a few, just a few years ago, a a Swedish scientist named Eric Zachrison, not Todd Erickson, but probably a relative, Eric Zachrison. Uh, discovered that there, there, there are 700 quintillion planets. That's seven with 20 zeros behind it. 700 quintillion planets. And there's only one that is equipped to preserve human life. That's earth. Now, how could that be? God created it that way. And it is a miracle that we're able to live, isn't it? But we also know that, 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 that this earth is trying to kill us constantly. We, we, we've never felt it more keenly in our lifetime than in the last couple of years. And so what is going to be new in the new heavens and new earth? It will be that the earth will be what it was originally supposed to be, not just a place to provide for life mostly, but a place that is only wired for human beings to flourish all the time. Every old thing will be taken away, respite from trials. Mourning will be replaced with joy. Danger will be replaced with safety. There will only be blessing all of the time. One scholar said that all Christian efforts, all Christian efforts for the betterment of mankind, that is, wells uh, in desert places and leper colonies and hospitals and counseling services and medical treatments and education and all of, the, all of the efforts that Christians have pioneered for the betterment of mankind throughout history, he said, all of them are profound interpretations of the will of God according to the book of Revelation. That as one is possessed by this picture of God in heaven, of a, of a, of a, a heaven that is, that, is, that is multi-ethnic, of a heaven where there is no poverty, of a heaven where there is no sickness, a heaven where there is no, no lack of education, no lack of anything, it's a picture of that that has moved powerfully Christians throughout the centuries to give their lives for the betterment of human beings. It's what moves us. It's second 
and our brothers and sisters throughout the evangelical church to move into the most broken places of Memphis. Not because we're trying to earn our way into heaven. We know that's free. It's a gift. We're in response to grace saying, we want to testify to the heaven that is coming by reaching into the future as we read about it in Revelation and bringing these blessings as, most, as best we can into the present. The fourth thing, the final thing that we find in this wonderful promise is in verses 7 and 8. It is the assurance of victorious inheritance. You notice that um, he says that this, is, this can be relied upon because he is trustworthy and true. Every promise made is rooted and grounded in the person of God. And this promise of heaven can only be inher- inherited, you see, verse 6, to the thirsty I'll give the spring of the water of life without payment. There's only one way to, to be assured of this inheritance of heaven. It is not by working your way there. It's not by trying to do enough good. It is instead by receiving it this very moment, if you haven't before, receiving it as a free gift. It is, it is admitting that you are not good, but you're a sinner. Just like Miss Lynn and little Franny taught us, we are sinners and deserve the wrath of God. And you say, that's who I am. So Lord, as you have died in my place to take the judgment of God from me, put your righteousness on me and and make me righteous. Give me that free gift. But then you notice that it's it's not that uh, you just take that free gift and then live any way you want to. You prove that you have received Christ that he's moved into your life, it will be proven by the way you live in response to that grace. So he says, verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. We've read this condition before in verses, in chapters 1 through 3, we've read it. To the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers, these are the things I'll give him, the tree of life, the new temple. His name, the name of God will be written on his on his head. He will be written in the book of life. He will be given garments of righteousness. He will reign with Christ. He will not face the second death. Though to the one who perseveres, to whom who overcomes, to him who conquers. Now, some of you were elated about heaven until this moment. Because now you think, well, it's not for me. Because I'm not a conqueror. Right now you're thinking, just what I have done or said or thought in the past 24 hours, I have surely put myself out of this category of persevering. But you miss one word if you think that in verse 7. It's a subtle change. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God. And you're saying now in your mind, and we will be his peoples. You've already taught us that, Pastor. No, you're not looking at the text. Look back at it. I will be his God, and he will be my son. Why does he use that singular, masculine uh, title? 
This is the repetition of the promise made to, to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. I will be your God and he will be my son. Making the promise to David's greater son, not Solomon, Christ. Here's the promise for you and me. How are we going to conquer? How are we going to persevere? How are we going to make it to the end? Can we get ourselves in shape again? Can we, can we rouse ourselves and become courageous enough and self-disciplined enough? No, we can't. What we can do is do what we did first, and that is run to Jesus. And that is what we must do constantly, every day. Cling to Jesus. He's our conqueror. And God's final promise is, I will be your God and you will be my son. You will be as the same as my son. I have united you to my son. You will be mine forever. If Christ is your savior, that is your promise. And so he calls you again this day to focus back on Jesus, the one you will see face to face as Kirk has seen him now. You'll see him face to face. And you want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. So what, what is worth more than that in this life? What compromise makes it worth it? What, what, what makes it worth it to blend in? To avoid persecution, avoid suffering, to avoid sacrifice. Nothing can compare to that. It's like this. Soon after Jackie and I married, somebody gave us, and we were brand new in the pastorate, somebody gave us a trip to Israel. We never could have afforded such a thing. Paid for our flights, gave us a tour, and they went with us. And uh, they said, now you have a year to prepare for this trip. And there's one thing you need to save your money for. It's something you will want to buy for yourself in Israel. You need to save your money for it. It's going to cost several hundred dollars you've got to save. An olive wood manger scene. And you want, to, you, you want to get that manger scene and it will be beautiful. Unlike anything you've ever seen, you can't get in the States. And it'll be something you hand on to your children and your grandchildren. Well, we didn't know what an olive wood manger scene was. And we, we had a little plastic one with a light bulb in it and thought that was good enough. But we took their word for it. By faith, we, we started saving our money. That was a lot of money to save. And we got, to, we got to, to, to Israel, and I thought, I've really been duped. I mean, there's one of these things on every corner of Israel. All of it, and they were 10 bucks, 25 bucks. What in the world are they talking about? Several hundred dollars for it. So I would, Scottish as I am, went for one of those, got my hand slapped by the friend who paid our way. Said, Don't do that. You save your money for a true olive wood manger. I said, well, that's olive wood. No, you wait. There's nothing like it. We got into another bazaar. I thought I was by myself. I reached for the $25. Oh, the tour guide said, save your money. I'm taking you to Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is the only place where you can get an a, a, a olive wood manger scene carved out of 2,000-year-old tree, well-preserved, dried out, intricately carved. 
It'll, it's, only the, it's the only heirloom quality manger scene you will get. Now, you save your money for Bethlehem. Oh, I, by faith. One day we finally, we travel to Bethlehem. There's an intifada strike. You can't, so we go into the back alley and we come into this decrepit little building. And I, this, I saved my money for this. And they opened the doors. Stunning. These delicately carved figurines out of specimens of olive wood we had not seen like that on the streets of Israel. It's a treasure and was worth waiting for. So glad I listened to them by faith. Save your money for Bethlehem. And John says to us, and all the saints who have gone before us say to us, Save your money for Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. Save your heart. Save your money. Save your, save your energies. Give your best for the new Jerusalem. You'll never regret it into all eternity. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your spirit who perseveres with our unbelief and our little faith. Please, Lord, enrapture us afresh with a vision for seeing Jesus in heaven. Keep us, Jesus, as we cling to you. Keep us, make us more than conquerors that we might arrive there without regret and hold up to you our treasures and hear your well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen.